He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Eight days old. Doesn't that seem a little young to be circumcised? I mean, I, mean, I know that uh, circumcision is a sign of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, but, but shouldn't parents allow a child to decide whether or not they want to, to be a part of that covenant community of faith and therefore be circumcised eight days old? Why after eight days must the child be circumcised exactly? Well, commentators point out that uh, the eighth day was a significant day for the Israelites because on the eighth day, a newborn had completed a seven-day unit of time corresponding to the seven days of creation. In fact, even an, an animal could not be set apart or dedicated to the Lord until after it was eight days old. They wouldn't even pull a calf away from its mother cow, according to Exodus 22, until that, that infant was at least eight days old. But still, eight days seems awfully young, doesn't it? Circumcision is a a big deal. Shouldn't a baby boy or a child or a young person make a decision for themselves whether or not they want to be circumcised? Is it really the parent's decision? Of course, most boys and men wouldn't choose to be circumcised, (laughs) given the option. Eight days is probably appropriate because no, no one's going to volunteer for that, which reminds me of the story of the two six-year-old boys who are in the pre-op room. They're both very anxious about the upcoming surgery. One is named Billy. The other is named Sam. Billy turns to Sam and says, hey, man, what are you, what are you here for? And, and Sam nervously says, well, I'm here to get my tonsils taken out. And Billy smiled and said, oh, that's no big deal. I had that done last year. And after I had my tonsils taken out, I could eat ice cream for a whole week. You're going to love it. Sam's like, oh, that's great. Well, well, what are you here for, Billy? And Billy said, well, I'm here for a circumcision. And Sam winced and said, ooh, I had that done right after I was born and I could not walk for a year. (laughs) Circumcision, not the kind of thing anyone would volunteer for, is it? Uh, But why so young? Uh, Shouldn't parents have waited until the the boy could decide for himself whether or not he wanted to be the, a part of this covenant community of faith and therefore be circumcised? Well, as we can see from our text in Genesis, circumcision is not necessarily a sign of salvation, but rather a sign of God's covenant community of faith. In Judaism, people were most often born into the covenant community of faith. The understanding among the Israelites was that as a, as a child was born into the covenant community of faith, they would participate in that covenant community of faith. And as they participated in the life of that covenant community of faith, they would come to know the Lord for themselves. In fact, in the Presbyterian Church, we have taken this understanding of of circumcising young babies and we've applied it to the new sign of God's covenant to baptism. For just as circumcision was a sign of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, so now baptism is a sign of God's covenant people and the new covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, in the New Testament, we do not have any explicit examples of infants being baptized. However, We do see examples of household baptisms in both Acts 16 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. These household baptisms most likely included children, and these children may or may not have known exactly what was going on, but they were baptized anyway, because in the first century, it was the faith of the head of the household that ultimately determined the faith practices of the entire household. 
We also know from Peter's sermon that we find in Acts chapter 2 on that first Pentecost Sunday, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 39, Peter tells the people, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children. Notice Peter makes a point to emphasize that the promises of God are for believers and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Yes, as Presbyterians, baptism has never been about salvation for us. It's a sign of being a part of the covenant community of faith. For us, salvation is found, as we talked about last week, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. As we read in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your lips Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As Paul writes on uh, to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Our faith is the sign of and of our assurance of salvation that we have in Christ. Baptism is simply a sign of being a part of that covenant community of faith. For as Paul reminds the Galatians, we are justified by faith, not by works of the law, not by uh, rituals like circumcision. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, two chapters before the text that Dan just read. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read that God tells Abraham to look at the stars in the sky, and he says, and so will your descendants be, even though Abraham is old, well along in years, and so is his wife Sarah. He believes, and in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was counted as righteous right before God's eyes because of his faith, not because of circumcision. Circumcision comes along in Genesis chapter 17. Paul points that out to the Galatians. While people are telling them they must be circumcised, it's like, no, we're we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. So as Presbyterians, uh, because we understand the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, What is most important to us is one's faith, not one's baptism. Ultimately, we as a denomination have made the decision that we will baptize both infants or believers. We'll let the parents decide. If they want to baptize their baby, well, we we celebrate that because we know that whenever time we baptize an infant, we highlight the prevenient grace of God, that God loves us before we ever love him. And we all make a commitment, as you'll recall, as Presbyterians, we make a commitment that we will have raised this child in the faith so that one day with his or her own lips, she will profess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. How can we as the body of Christ make sure that we're doing that well, that we're living out that commitment to help raise this child in the faith? Did you know that 70% of youth Stop attending church when they graduate from high school. 70% of youth who went to church in high school stop going once they go off to college. 
And nearly a decade later, researchers tell us that only half of those who left the church have returned. How can we make sure that our children have a a faith that sticks? What did Jesus think about the way we should disciple and reach out to our children? To find out, open your pew Bibles, your red pew Bibles, to Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. It may be found on page 1115 of your red pew Bible, Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have your words today. We thank you for the thorough research that Luke did, that he, he gathered many eyewitness accounts so that we might have a faithful testimony of Jesus, exactly what you said when it came to children. Oh God, as we read your word, may you speak to us again. May we hear from you. May you open our hearts and open our minds that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 15. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, Let the little little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus loves little children. Jesus knows that we as adults can learn a lot from the humble faith of children. But notice that the children do not come to Jesus on their own, do they? Let's look again at verse 15 of our text. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. It's interesting to note that Luke uses the Greek word here for infants or babies. Mark, telling this very same story, uses the Greek word for young children. Young children might be able to make their own way to Jesus. I'm sure that Jesus would open his arms to them and welcome them to come to him. But an infant, a baby, literally has to be carried, brought to Jesus. Luke wants us to know that these parents were doing all that they could to literally bring, to carry their children to Jesus. Did you know that historians tell us that the mortality infant, the infant mortality rate was 30% in the first century. Of the 70% who were able to survive infancy, another 30% would die before the age of six. These parents were desperate 
to bring their infants, their babies, their preschoolers to children because they wanted Jesus, the great healer, the great miracle worker, the great teacher to touch, to bless, and most likely to heal their children. Yes, the disciples try to rebuke these parents, but these parents could care less what the disciples have to think because they love their children so much. They want to make sure that Jesus gets a chance to touch them. Do we as parents and grandparents have that same commitment, persistence, that we're going to do whatever it takes to bring our children to Jesus? You know, when I was a boy growing up in Midland, uh, four hours south of here, it's very similar to Amarillo except without the snow. Uh, We don't have much snow there. When I was growing up in the 80s and 70s, you know, there were these things called blue laws, right? And the only thing that was open on Sunday was the grocery store and the movie theater. On Sunday mornings, there was nothing you could do except go to church. But nowadays, there are all kinds of things that are open. Children are constantly being pulled and distracted from coming to worship on Sunday mornings. There's sports, you know, with the hope that my son will be the next Major League Baseball player. Or there's basketball, hoping that my son will be the next NBA basketball player. There's all kinds of things that draw parents away from coming here to gather together to experience Christ's presence firsthand. Now on Easter Sunday, and you've seen it, on Easter Sunday, everybody is here. But what about the 51 other Sundays a year? How consistent are we to make sure that our children are in worship on Sunday school? Because every study shows us that statistically, the most significant spiritual influence in a child's life is usually their parents. Notre Dame sociologist and researcher Dr. Christian Smith points this out. After studying the faith development of more than 3,000 young people nationwide from Protestant, Roman, Catholic, Jewish, and Mormon families, the best general rule of thumb that parents might use to reckon their children's most likely religious outcome is this. We'll get what we are. We'll get what we are. The primary influence in a child's faith trajectory is his or her parents without a doubt. If we have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, then we will always come to gather in worship on Sunday mornings because we know that when two or more are gathered together, he is here and we we experience Christ's presence as we gather together as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head of the church and through faith in Christ, we are now all members of that body together. I remember as a child, you know, I, I had a voice, but I had no vote when it came to Sunday mornings. I would often voice my opinion that, Mom, I've already heard the story of Noah and the story of David and the story of Samson. I don't need to go to Sunday school yet again for one more Sunday about the same old story. And my mom would say, good to hear, but you need to go. We're going, so you're coming with us. I had a voice, but I had no vote. I mean, it didn't matter what I thought. Ultimately, it was what my parents wanted me to do. And I am so grateful that they not only insisted that we come to worship uh, almost every Sunday. My dad was the head usher at the time but also that I came to Sunday school. I grew up thinking church was a two-hour experience, not a one-hour worship service. As a church, we are practicing what we call parenting the pew because studies have shown us that children who worship with their parents will continue to worship as they grow older. 
Now, we recognize that preschoolers may not yet be ready to sit through a worship service. Their attention spans are not as long. And so Debbie Lauer has done a wonderful job creating an early childhood preschool worship experience in Critterland at the 11 o'clock hour where you can bring your preschooler and they will get to hear Bible stories, gather around circle to talk about God's word and to sing praises to God. It's designed specifically for preschoolers and kindergartners. But once a child reaches first grade, we know that, well, that they're willing and able to sit and listen, to hear God's word, and to participate in worship with us. And so we as parents want to teach them as soon as they can what it means to worship God together as part of the corporate body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but in our postmodern world where truth is based on one's experience, I want to make sure that my own children experience the love of Jesus every Sunday morning as a part, an active part of this body of Christ as we worship God together. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that when two or more are gathered together in his name, he is there. Jesus is with us every morning as we gather together in his name. He is the head, we are the bodies. Of course, we want to make sure that we have a church that children want to come to. They won't have to prod and force them, but rather they're excited to come and to worship God together here in this place. So how can we do that? How can we make sure that we have a church that children and young people want to come to? After 12 years of extensive research on the graduates of successful youth programs, the Fuller Youth Institute was able to identify some key characteristics of churches that are growing young Churches where kids want to come to worship. Churches where kids don't, they love it so much they don't even want to leave. Churches that are helping develop a faith that sticks in their young people through college years and beyond. Intergenerational ministry, that's how we're going to help build up the next generation for the body of Christ. As parents, we have got to do all that we can to bring our children to Jesus. But once they're here, we as the adults need to do all that we can to reach out to these children, to let them know that they are loved. Last Sunday at our backpack blessing, there was a a series of crosses with the first name of a child on it. We encouraged everyone to, to grab a cross so that they might pray for that child throughout the school year. We still have some crosses left over. Not every cross was taken. I've done this the last couple years. I, I grabbed Casey Bell's cross last year. The year before that, I grabbed Luke Worsham's uh, cross, and I've been praying for those boys, and I still pray for them, even though it may not be their year. I keep praying for both of them, and every time I see them, I ask Luke, hey, how's school going? I know that Luke plays piano. I'm like, how's piano going? I talk to Casey. I know he plays soccer and track. He's more athletic. So, hey, Casey, how's school going? How are the sports going? It means so much to our children. I know my own children. When someone comes and greets them by name, and not only says hello, but begins to ask them about, about how they're doing. You know, spiritual mentoring is a lot less, it's not really about giving advice as much as it is listening well to another person, expressing your, your sincere interest for them, praying for them, and encouraging them to be all that God designed them to be. You know, there are two types of advice in this world, solicited advice and unsolicited advice. I know most people enjoy solicited advice. I asked for your opinion, I really want to hear it. But unsolicited advice, not many people like unsolicited advice. Now, as a parent, I reserve the right to give unsolicited advice to my children while they're young because otherwise they won't know. I've got to train them up in the way that they should go. 
But when it comes to our young people, we don't need to be giving unsolicited advice. We need to rather listen to them, encourage them, see what God is already doing in their life, pray for them, seek to be a blessing to them. After all, what this text is really all about in Luke chapter 18 is humility. Because prior to Luke chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, Jesus tells this powerful parable in Luke chapter 18, 10 to 14, in order to teach the lesson of humility. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right after this story, Parents, Luke tells the story of how parents worked diligently to bring their children to Jesus and how the disciples, perhaps in their pride, did not want to allow children to have access to Jesus. They, they rebuked these parents, but Jesus welcomed the most humble members of the community, the children, saying, let the little children come unto me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Unless you become like a child, unless you humble yourself and have that humble, open faith of a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus lets us know that we can learn a lot from our children by spending time with them, by recognizing their openness to hear God's word, their openness and their willingness to learn. Yes, we should treat the youth and the children of our church like brothers and sisters in Christ, for that is what we are. We are all sinners saved by grace. We should not domineer or try to tell them what to do, but rather we should humbly listen, empathize. In fact, one uh, youth leader says that the warm is the new cool. If, If a young person feels that the church is warm and willing to listen to them and encourage them and engage them in personal relationships, they will find that church to be cool. They're not interested in all the splash or the, or the exciting uh, different things that people can do. Rather, they want to focus on the relationships. And we want to make sure that we have a facility that helps promote intergenerational ministry. Right after the service, uh, architect Bill Merriman is going to be talking to us about the master plan for this campus. And the vision is to make sure that we have a campus that helps promote our values of intergenerational ministry. We, we've got a lot of work to do with the children's wing. We've got a lot of work to do with the youth house. Yes, these are things that maybe you and I won't directly relate, uh, use. Perhaps I'll use some with my kids, but, but not everyone will. But at the same time, we know that we are called by Christ to put the needs of others before our own. After all, isn't that what Jesus did? He humbly came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. For as Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My friends, children won't come to know Jesus unless we welcome them, unless we invite them, unless we receive them as fellow brothers and sisters. Treating them as we would want to be treated if we were them. Humbly putting their needs before our own. As we do that, as we humbly put the needs of our young people before our own, they will begin to experience Christ's love, unconditional, sacrificial love through us. And not only do we want to put their needs before our own, we want to empower them to use their gifts in ministry whether that be a part of our choir or youth singing in our choir. I know my daughter Hannah's about to start singing in Norman's choir or, or helping lead worship downstairs or, or serving as a, as a greeter or just joining us on mission trips or participating as an active member of the body of Christ. Yes, our church is doing all that we can in our programming to make sure that we have an intergenerational experience, intergenerational ministry Events like the backpack blessing. You may not have a kid who's going to school, but you could come and bless a child and pray for them as they get ready to start school. Or the Gilmore Ranch that we all love to go to. As you go, make sure you engage a child that maybe you don't know. In fact, we gave an assignment to our elders recently. It was to basically make an effort to meet a different young person each week. And then the next week, be sure to find them and greet them by name. Ask them about how school is going. Let them know that they are loved. I loved what Kara Powell said one child to five adults, five adults who know their name, five adults who are praying for them, five adults who show that they care by humbly putting the need of a child before their own. This is we put the needs of children before our own. Young people are drawn to the generous, unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus that they experience through us. One of the principal ways we can demonstrate our love for our youth and for our children is by inviting them to join us in ministry and even lead us as we all humbly seek to grow in our relationship with Jesus together. I love the plan that the youth ministry has uh, with the senior uh, high. They are using the senior high to help mentor and disciple the middle school. In fact, seniors help plan the middle school retreat every year. The seniors in high school help serve as the speakers and the small group leaders. And they're immobilizing the youth also to help with Wednesday nights. Uh, I've seen our own Berkeley Bruckner every Wednesday night helping with the kids, blessing those children, blessing the kids that are coming behind them. When we have vacation Bible school, our, our youth show up in full force to help lead those children. We as adults need to follow that example. We need to get active, make that a part of our legacy, the legacy of faith, pouring into them so they might become all that God designed them to be. Yes, that's what intergenerational ministry is really all about. Encouraging one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, humbly walking alongside one another as we seek to grow in Christ together. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus was one who welcomed the children. Lord, help us to be a welcoming church, an inviting church, Lord, that it invites children to join us in ministry, that we might make every effort to learn the name of a new young person each week and then to greet that young person by name each week. Lord, I thank you for the youth ministry. I thank you for Jake and Kim and Anna and how they're helping mobilize our young people to help pour into the, the children of our church and the middle school students of our church. God, pray that you would continue to guide them in that process and help us all see how we might 
bless the children. For, for Lord, that is what you did. You blessed them, you welcomed them. And you gave them to us as an example of how we ought to humbly follow you. Oh Lord, we can learn a lot from our children. Help us to have open hearts as we seek to do ministry together.